What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or of what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that was so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we who know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let me just quickly pray for Becca as she comes up to speak to us today. God, we thank you for your word to us in Romans. Thank you for the way that it teaches us more about you and more about us as your people. Um, be with Beck today as she preaches, Lord. Help her to be able to um, open this passage to us and give us insights. Help our hearts to be soft to receive what it is that you're saying to us today. Amen. Well, I wonder what brings you to church today, or in fact, what brings you to church any day, any Sunday? What gets you out of bed here on a Sunday morning into church? There's probably, we could probably broadly split this group into two categories, I think. The first is uh, people who've just always come to church. I'm one of those people. I was brought up in the church. My parents are believers. And I got into the habit of going to church. And so I come to church each week. Um, I'm well versed in the prayer book and in the Bible and in the ways of God's people. For other people, this is a newer experience. Maybe as an adult, you came to hear the good news about Jesus and you uh, became a follower and you joined the community of the church. And I wonder how weird that was for you to uh, be to join the kind of customs, to start to read the Bible um, and to talk to the God of the universe. A very kind of stark contrast. So two kinds of people. I'm sure there's different other people. There may even be people here today who are really just starting to um, investigate church for the first time. And I say to you, welcome. This is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. 
when you open the commentary and says, this is one of the trickiest passages in the trickiest book of the Bible, you know, uh, that you've got to switch your brain on and don't worry if you get lost in some bits. I might even do so myself. We'll see. Um, God is good. Well, um, we have these two categories in most churches today and in the Roman church that Paul was writing to, those two categories sat as well. And while this passage might seem a bit remote, talks of Jews and circumcision, which are kind of um, not really relevant to us, really what Paul is talking about is the two categories that sit in in that same church in um, Rome in the first century. Because there were people there who had heard the news of Jesus for the first time, never ever having worshipped the God of Israel. Uh, Their hearts had been dulled to knowledge of God, as we heard last week in chapter 1. And when they um, were convicted of their sin and heard about Jesus' death and resurrection, they became followers of him and they joined this church. But also in this church were people who had been raised as Jews. They were already covenant people people who were living God's way because they had been given his law um, centuries before. So their parents were Jews and their heritage was the um, heritage of the people of Israel. And so imagine if you were one of those people and you heard what we heard last week from chapter 1. You might have an objection or a question because you have been raised obedient or knowing that you should be obedient to the law of God. And so the question comes, doesn't it, in this first verse of Romans chapter 3, what advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? And Paul has a yes, no answer to this question. Is there any advantage in being a Jew when it comes um, to the things we've heard about the sinful heart and God's judging of the whole world? Is there any advantage if you have been part of God's covenant people already? He says, yes, much in every way in verse 2. And then in verse 9, he says, do we have any advantage? Not at all. It's a yes-no answer. And it's not that he changes his mind, it's just that there is an advantage, but it's not a huge one. But let's look at the yes first because um, last week was pretty heavy and we want a little bit of good news, I think. What is the advantage? Much in every way there is an advantage in being a Jew or being a person who has always followed, been part of the biblical faith because Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. When I was a girl, I had a special job that my mum gave me. I'm one of eight kids and our house was chaos. But in my parents' bedroom, my mother had a dressing table. It had a beautiful mirror and all over the dressing table were her treasures. She had things that she brought from the Czech Republic where she'd grown up, special objects that she'd been given as gifts. And my job was once a week to go into her room with the duster and clean all of her precious objects. I was entrusted with her special things. And um, I felt the weight of that. Don't break the little hand off the shepherd girl. Be careful with mum's jewellery. This is the word that Paul uses about what the Jews have been given. They've been entrusted with the very words of God. And we know this because we've been reading Exodus this year. We saw it, didn't we, how God gives them his words. 
in our youth group last year, we, um, we encouraged the kids to talk and give their testimonies about um, how they came to know Jesus. And Celeste has allowed me to share a little bit of her testimony. She said something very surprising as someone who's grown up in the church. She said, the thing I like about being a Christian is that I have the Bible and that I can work out right from wrong. This surprised me because I would never have said that as a 15-year-old. I grew up in a generation where I was constantly told that I was a bad person and that I needed to repent and ask for forgiveness. So I would have said as a 15-year-old, the thing I like about being Christian is because I'm a terrible sinner, God will forgive me because of Jesus. That is not the culture that youth are growing up in today, is it? Or that we are a part of. We're not told that we are terrible sinners. We're actually told, the secular humanist um, philosophy is that we are good people. That um, basically we are good and we sometimes do wrong things and we are perfectly capable of working out right from wrong for ourselves. But this is, uh, this is actually very hard to do and this is reflected in what Celeste said in her testimony. Because um, morality is... Uh, moving all the time and the way um, teenagers are encouraged to work out right from wrong is using um, what's really called consequentialist ethics. When I do this action, will it make me feel good? Will it um, give me happiness or fulfilment? Or, the second, the second thing to consider, will it cause harm to another person or um, help them? Those are the two things. What will it do for me and what will it do for other people? And if you were here last week, you can hear in that way of thinking about right from wrong that it has turned the order of creation over, hasn't it? Not God first, others and me, but me first and others and God is out of the picture. And while it sounds like freedom, there is a terrible anxiety in uh, the teenage generation as they try and work out what to do, who they are, and how to live. So what Celeste was saying in her testimony is what Paul is saying in this first verse. They have the words of the law. And the reason that the words of the law, being entrusted with them, is an advantage is because, because we have dull hearts, we have very clear revelation of God to us in the law. If you remember um, back in Exodus when God gives Moses the law, it starts like this. God says, Hello, let me introduce myself. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You'll have no other gods but me. That's hard to remember when your heart is hard and you don't think about God. So God gives them his words on tablets of stone. He tells them how to live. And then he gets them to build a tabernacle right in the middle of their camp and later the temple in Jerusalem. So they can see and remember that God should be primary, that they should be listening to his law, obeying his law and worshipping him. There is a great advantage if you have grown up knowing the law of God, if you've had a Bible to read, if you've been taught in the church. Our kids upstairs at the moment, what an advantage they have in terms of knowing God, that they are being taught from an early age who God is and how he wants us to live so that we will flourish in this world. It's a wonderful, 
wonderful advantage. But the thing about this advantage is that it has some traps. And we see what the traps are straight away, these questions that then start to come out. The first one is, well, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? That is, if some of Israel, and this is not a hypothetical question, is it? We know that Israel almost immediately disobeyed God's laws by building themselves the golden calf, but all the way through the Old Testament kept turning away from God and um, worshipping other gods, turning the temple in, um, into a place of um, where there were prostitutes, uh, neglecting the poor, the widows, the orphans, doing exactly the opposite of what the law said. What if some were unfaithful? Will this nullify God's faithfulness? Will God uh, break his covenant with us? God promised that he would always be our God and that we would be his people. So if we don't keep, just say some people didn't keep the covenant, will that mean God will be unfaithful to his covenant? And Paul says, no, not at all. Let God be true and everybody a liar, which he's already said, hasn't he, in chapter 1, that everybody is unfaithful and he's just reiterating it. But he, and he explains it by saying, taking a little bit from the Psalms and saying this, it's proved here so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. And what Paul's saying here is, God will remain faithful and the way he will prove his faithfulness is by judging your disobedience. Not by letting you off the hook, is what he's saying to the Jews in the church. This is, and this is what they saw as well in the Old Testament. And that's kind of surprising because people often think faithfulness is about uh, just sticking with someone no matter what happens. But a parent, the parent relationship is a good one. And the thing about the Bible is it talks about God in, with lots of different pictures. And we're going to use some of these different pictures. A good parent will provide consequences for their child's bad behaviour. Believe it or not, because actually that's not necessarily um, uh, believed throughout our culture now even, but it's true that children will not learn and grow unless there are consequences for bad behaviour. And God is like a good parent, and he proves faithful as a parent by blessing obedience and judging disobedience. And so Paul says... Don't worry, God will be faithful even if some are unfaithful. Okay, well that raises some questions, doesn't it? And the next one is, uh, well, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, uh, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument, Paul says. That's not true, and we've just explained that. Certainly not, he says. If that were so, how could God judge the world? And what Paul is saying here is, if, you have, if Jews have the law and they know how to live and they disobey it, if God refuses to judge them because they are his covenant people, what hypocrisy would it be if you were then to judge the rest of the world who didn't have the law? What would that say about God? God must be faithful and he must deal with evil. Well, here's another one. This is a creative argument. In verse 7, some might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, 
Why am I still condemned as a sinner? This is a, a, this is a bit of um, a fun argument. If when I do the wrong thing, I show that God is faithful in his punishment, or that I show that God is uh, faithful because he is righteous and perfect and I am not, then uh, isn't that enough? Haven't I done my part? Doesn't my badness, you know, sometimes people say, oh, you make me look good or I make you look good. You know, that's the kind of joke sometimes friends have because you're good at this and I'm not. Or um, I'm, you know, you know that kind of talk. That's what we're saying here. That's what people are saying here about God. Uh, maybe um, we should not be judged the same as others because through our unfaithfulness, through our story of unfaithfulness, we, all, we already have shown that God is good and faithful and mighty. Well, says Paul, uh, why don't you just say, let's just do evil so that good may result? The condemnation is just in this case. So the problem with the advantage of having God's law and knowing what it is, is that if you start to do it and it helps you to become gooder than you might already be, you might become proud. And you might start to believe that you um, are better than other people and that God owes you something. That's what Paul's saying to them. And it's a pretty harsh word, isn't it? And um, if it's not harsh enough to hear this, it gets even harder. Because then he says, well, yep, there's some danger, but actually, verse 9, as we saw, what shall we conclude? There is no advantage at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. And to really get the message across, Paul's written a song for us. And I'm calling it the no one ever song. Or the most depressing mashup in the history of the world. Because this is not new material that Paul is writing. In fact, it is a selection of verses from the Psalms and Isaiah that were originally used to point the finger at other people. They were Israel's way of lamenting the evil that was coming at them from Gentile nations. But Paul has taken them together and created this song for them just for them to talk about the Jews themselves. Let me read it to you. And maybe someone should put this to music. What do you think? No, probably not. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does God good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now Paul has selected these verses and arranged them in a way that it actually follows exactly the same argument that we saw last week in chapter 1. It starts in the mind, the thought, and in the heart, comes up in your throat and into your mouth and onto your lips, and the evil in our hearts can't help but break through as we harm others with our words and actions in the world.
And he finishes by saying, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, though, through the law we become conscious of our sin. This is a legal image, the silencing of the mouth. In fact, all this passage is legal speak in a way, isn't it? It's that arguing back and forward. Am I going to be, how am I going to be judged by God? Am I right? Do I have an argument? Can I, in my own right, become declared righteous before God? And Paul has argued, no, every mouth is stopped. And in the courtrooms of Paul's day, this is exactly what you did. If you had no defense, you put your hand in front of your mouth. And if you didn't, um, you didn't know to do that yourself, the person representing you would do it for you. And so this is what Paul's saying. Everybody before God has their hand before their mouth. Now, you might think this is extreme. And as I look out, I think you guys are pretty nice people. This is the word for us. Seems pretty intense, doesn't it? And partly that's because it is that kind of legal back and forward. There's not um, much about God as that loving father. We talked about God as the faithful spouse in this passage. This is God, the judge. But it is there, this language of faithful and unfaithfulness. God is more than just someone pointing the finger at us. And I talked before about um, Celeste's generation, the teenager's generation, uh, that they work out right from wrong, pretty much based on consequences. Well, this is talking about working out right from wrong, from behaviour. This is another way to work out what is the right behaviour and the wrong behaviour. The law tells us how to behave. And Paul knew this exactly, didn't he? Paul, who writes this letter, who makes these accusations, was himself a Jew who had come to know Jesus. And he says something remarkable in Philippians about himself. He says, you know what, if anyone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee, so a teacher, a good teacher of the law. And I was zealous. I was persecuting the church. And as for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless, he says. So is this a contradiction to what he's saying, that no one is righteous before God? He's actually saying it's possible to be regarded as faultless in regards to the law. He thought he himself was faultless. But that's because all we're looking at is the actions, the behaviour. And the truth is God is a judge who sees our hearts. I heard a fascinating um, podcast over the holidays, a woman called Kate Ross-Maneth. I don't know if anyone heard this on the ABC Conversations. She's been doing some research um, into the idea of remorse. And in particular, in the legal system, what does it mean when people are given a lenient sentence because they show remorse? And how do you work that out? And the research she's done, um, she's, she's talked to um, criminals, 
um, who've had lenient sentences. And as she talked to them, she discovered that some of the remorse they expressed, one in particular said he wasn't actually remorseful. He was just doing the thing that he knew he should do and got a lighter sentence. Um, he was anonymous in the interview. <laughs> Uh, but she also talked to judges and tried to get out of them, how do you work out if a person's heart is really changing, if they really are sorry for what they've done? And she concluded from talking to them that actually they're not able to do that. They think they are and they do it, but they, they actually don't have the ability to do that. Human beings can't actually see into another person's heart. But the God who judges the world is the one who sees our heart. He is a God who sees our hearts, and that is what he cares about. And that is what belonging to him is about. When Jesus talked about the law, he didn't list the Ten Commandments. He said, the law is summed up by this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. And on another occasion when he was questioned about the law, he said this, you've heard it written that you shall do no murder, but I tell you, even if you hate someone, you are guilty of murder. And so surely Paul now recognises that he too cannot stand in the court of God and be judged righteous because in his heart he hated people. That's the one thing we know about him that, he's, that we know from the Bible. I'm sure there are plenty of other things. But he hated people. He wanted Christians to be murdered. And why? Because Christianity was turning Judaism on its head. Christianity was saying, you can't be righteous by the law. You need to trust in Jesus. And we're going to hear more about that next week. That's a shame because that's a really good news. I'm pretty sure our hearts are quite heavy at the moment. But I want to encourage you by what it says at the end of that um, passage. No one will be declared righteous by God, in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. This is actually part of the advantage that Paul talks about at the beginning of belonging to Jesus and being part of his covenant people for a long time. It's not that you become good or gooder. You probably will, actually, the longer you know God and his ways you will become good. People might even tell you, oh, you're a good person. Has anyone ever said that to you? That's a strange thing to hear. But really, what the law does is shines a light on our hearts. It makes us conscious of our sin, and that's a good thing because it drives us back to God. So the light shines on our heart, and we've been shining it on our hearts for a couple of weeks now, and it's painful but what the law also does is shine a light on God and his faithfulness to us. So God gathers his people. He gives them the law. They disobey. He is faithful again in judgment. But he is also faithful because he loves his people. We are asked to love God. Well, he loves us more than we could ever love him. And he makes a way to deal with this. Some of my friends who've been Christians for a long time find it really hard to go to church. They feel like they're always being told that they are the terrible sinner, like I was growing up in the 70s in church. They want to hear more of God's love, and I think that is the right um, balance, that we continue to hear of God's love and grace. 
But what Paul is saying here is you will never understand that if you can't shine the light on your heart first and see your need for it. Jesus, I think, pretty much taught the same thing that Paul is teaching here when he told the story of the prodigal son. We always think about that first son who runs away. That's the story of last week of Romans chapter 1, the one who's so far off and comes to his senses and goes back to God and says, I'm unworthy and I don't deserve to be called your son, but God embraces him. But the second part of that story has another son, doesn't it? The second son. I'm just going to read you a little bit about that second son. Meanwhile, this is when um, there's a party going on for the other son. The older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and said, what's going on? Your brother has come, the servant replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The problem of being close to God all your life is that you may fall in the danger of thinking you deserve more than all the things that God has already given you. You might want to cry, that's unfair. And so as we hear these words today, I encourage you to think again about what it is that God has done for you in light of your sin. Well, um, let's think a little bit about some of the applications that will come out of this for us today. First of all, be serious about sin. That's obvious. About having a heart problem. Last month um, in Brunswick, Eurydice Dixon, a young woman, was murdered. And suddenly the whole community recognised we have a serious heart problem. Or at least the Prime Minister recognised we have a heart problem. Everybody was very upset. People were gathering in Prince's Park. There was anger that such evil could happen in our culture, in our, our civilised society. Real anger and real mourning, and that's really appropriate. The thing is, Eurydice Dixon was the 30th woman to be violently killed in Australia this year. And since her death, there have been seven more. We have a serious heart problem in our culture too. We need to be serious about sin, and we need to not buy the lie that um, we keep being told that we are basically good people and we can choose to do good or evil. No, we need a saviour and a helper in Jesus. And let's not be ashamed of that. Paul says at the beginning of Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to save us. So when, we are, when things like this happen, um, 
and people are angry, it's good to listen and to mourn with people and say, yes, this is serious. I just found it very interesting that um, Malcolm Turnbull in Parliament, when he was talking about the death of this young woman, said, we have to change the hearts of men to respect women. That's a huge project, isn't it? He said, and the way we're going to do this, we're going to start with them when they're young and teach them how to, um, to respect women and growing up. Well, there's a long way to go in our culture with that. How are we going to do that? We need help. We need help. So when these things happen and things like this are said, we need to um, affirm it. We need to help people um, to see that we have a heart problem and acknowledge it as well. And not to point the finger, but to, say, to admit that we too have heart problems. We need to do it out in the community. We need to not be surprised when these things happen. We need to speak of God's faithfulness and his desire to change us. But we need to do it here as well. When I first came to this church, I thought, wow, these people are really put together well. They are good. They are good people following God. And I know sometimes when I talk to people who come that that's how they feel too. This can be an intimidating group of people to come because a lot of you have learnt the law and have been following it for a long time. So when we confess our sins in the service, we need to take that seriously and um, and, but more than that, we need to be real with one another. And if you're not someone who's known God for a long time, can I ask you to be real and to not feel intimidated? We need your example to us as well. We need to stop worrying about appearances, to relax a little bit about behaviour and allow the spotlight to shine on our hearts. And when we practice confession here on a Sunday, this is something we can also do in our lives um, day to day. I love the nonnas of Brunswick who tie their aprons on every day and go out to their perfectly, it seems to me, clear concrete garden. They take their brooms and sweep every single day. There might be three leaves. If you come to my house, you'll see the pile of leaves that sits outside my house. I don't have that discipline. But to every day sit with God and say to him, show me my heart and be at work in me, this is like the nonnas of Brunswick. And we could be like that if we take sin seriously. And the thing that I want to say too is that we have an extra advantage as we do that. Because since Jesus came, we have the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. And we will hear more of this in Romans. But it gives us great confidence as we go to God that actually there will be transformation for us. We have this extra advantage. Well, one more, uh, oh no, I had one more thing that I wanted to say to parents. You know, the kids upstairs are learning God's ways and we don't want them to become, um, fall into the traps of religiosity, of thinking that they're good enough for God. So as parents and people who lead them, let me encourage you to work out how to model God's faithfulness to them. So being serious about sin, but also gracious. And because we're not perfect, that means we can say sorry when we do wrong to them, admit our own mistakes and ask for forgiveness. And it means that instead of picking on particular behaviours all the time, we can fight for their hearts and our relationship with them as the primary thing, as God does for us. 
Well, as we come to communion today, um, let's take that seriously too. We come and remember um, that Jesus died for us, that he rose again, that we have his spirit at work in us, but that we need it. And I've just put in the order of service, you might like to um, look at it on page six, a prayer that I prayed going to church every Sunday in my childhood that I prayed before we had communion and I was just reminded of it this week and I thought we could finish by praying it together. Let's pray. We do not presume to come to your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your all-embracing love and mercy. We are not worthy even to gather up the crumbs under your table, but it is your nature always to have mercy. So feed us with the blood and body of Jesus Christ, your Son, that we may forever live in him and he in us. Amen.